from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? USAFacts.org is a nonprofit, nonpartisan, civic initiative aimed at making verified government numbers more available and more understandable to you and me. It was created by former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer because he felt that government doesn't provide the kind of comprehensive reporting for citizens that even publicly traded companies are required to for their shareholders. Well, you're kind of like shareholders. USA Facts now creates an annual report and a 10K, much like a public company would for the SEC. Except in this case, it's designed to provide a comprehensive view of the US, federal, state, and local government's combined revenues and expenditures, as well as key metrics that we'll talk about in a few minutes, that measure progress toward objectives that we've established in our constitution. Steve Ballmer chose Poppy McDonald, who you probably knew as president and chief operating officer at Politico, to guide and execute this rather necessary mission, especially necessary today. So today we bring you Poppy McDonald, president of usafacts.org. This is politics, meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. And of course, my co-host, Jane Albrecht, she's an international trade attorney who for a decade protected First Amendment rights for the film industry. She's protected American interests to world leaders, and she's a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar. She's also been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. Hey, Jane, how you doing? Pretty good. Nice to see you, Bill, and welcome, Poppy. And Poppy McDonald. She's the president of USAFacts.org. Her bio states that USA Facts is a nonpartisan, I wanted to say this again, and nonprofit source for well-visualized data on the American people. We're going to want to delve into well-visualized in a minute and what she meant by that and how we're doing as a nation. And here's something really different for a change. Poppy is leading an effort to help Americans ground their democratic debate in real, backed-up facts. Poppy served as president, as you heard, and chief operating officer of Politico, and she was also the National Journal's publisher and president. Poppy, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Bill. I'm doing well, and I'm thrilled to be on Meet Me in the Middle. So thank you for the invitation. So Poppy, tell us about leaving Politico. How did you meet Steve Ballmer? Well, I got a great phone call. I am originally from Oregon, moved out to Washington, D.C. to work on Capitol Hill for members of my hometown from the Pacific Northwest. So worked in Congress and then worked in media and for the Gallup poll. And I always thought, how would I ever come back to the Pacific Northwest? And I got this great phone call and it was from Steve Ballmer and he was looking for someone to come and head USA Facts. And he had identified an issue and it may be one that some of us have struggled with or may not even be aware of, which is that the people's data, our public government data, is actually really hard to get access to. And he called and said, I have gone through the effort myself of trying to get the people's data. I wanted to know when I left Microsoft how kids were being lifted out of poverty or not, and what government programs existed to do that, what was being spent, how effective they were. And I spent like two weeks looking at that, trying to find that data, and said, this is tough. And six months later, I finally had pulled together all of the pieces to figure it out. And I decided that is too hard. If it's this hard for me to get access to government data, and and he had some help. He was the CEO of Microsoft. So he had a hack team of financial analysts helping him do that. How hard must it be for an individual citizen or for even a politician to access this data? And data is something Steve relied on to 
make business decisions at Microsoft. And he felt government and American taxpayers or shareholders deserve to have data driving their decisions. So he said, Poppy, I've assembled this incredible database that has over 70 government data sources, and I want people to know it exists. You're in media, you've built an audience at Politico, will you come help me do that? And so it was an opportunity not only to move back to my home in the Pacific Northwest, but it was also an opportunity to make Americans get access to facts. And I think right now, more than ever, we could all agree that it's an important thing for this country. This is a long-term plan. This isn't just presenting the facts that he had calculated at that time in a new way. This is something that we're going to have as a base and a source to rely on for years to come, right? Yes, Steve launched it in 2017. He gave me a call the end of 2018 and said, I'm long-term committed to this. I think at the time he had said, let's spend like 10 years building this up as the definitive source of government data where people can get easy access to data they care about on topics that matter. And then let's turn it over to the government as a gift. He has no commercial motive, no profit motive. He just wants to make government data accessible for good decision-making. Our hope is that we can ground debates back in the facts. We know people are going to disagree on the right outcomes, and we think that's good. Healthy, hearty debate, that's important for Americans' progress. But we also think it should start with agreement on what does the data tell us, and then watch the data to see how do the policies we implement now, how do the people we elect now impact those numbers in positive or negative ways. We started with, hey, maybe in 10 years, government would do this for themselves. We're starting to think it probably looks more like 50 years. That sounds like our government pace. (laughs) Yes. And it's also a big endeavor. People say, well, of course, our data is publicly available. We're the shareholders of our country. But I think what some people don't realize is how expansive government is in the United States of America. So you take it from federal agencies. We have over 70 federal data sets. People know there are 50 states. I'm not sure if everyone knows there are 3,300 counties, and then there are over 90,000 government entities in the U.S. So to collect all of that data and make it available so that people can really understand what does the data look like in terms of how government is or isn't serving me where I live, in my neighborhood, in my school district. That's a lot of work. So I would say we're just at the cusp of all of that. I can imagine. So I've got to give our listeners a quick little warning here, because in order to do this show, I dove into usafacts.org, and it's incredibly addictive. You just can't stop. Every time you click on something else, you dive into another aspect about our life here in America. Some of the numbers and the trends are really amazing. And the other day when we had our little pre-chat, you used a term I want to kind of throw back at you, if you don't mind. You said that we're living through a crisis of facts. And I wanted to know what you meant by that. A crisis of facts in that I feel like Americans are overwhelmed with the amount of information coming at them, all with positive intent, right? I came from the world of media where we were trying to report on latest breaking news because we wanted that transparency and accountability. But there is a proliferation of information sources. There's social media. And we hear from Americans in our state of the facts poll that a majority of Americans rely on social media as a news source, but majority also do not trust it as a source. And then I would also say in terms of misinformation, depending on the channel you tune into, the politician you're listening to, you're getting conflicting information. And so people are hungry for like, can you just tell me where do we stand by the numbers, by the facts? And we know they're not always easy to get access to. And so that's really why USA Facts has stepped in to say we're nonpartisan, 
We have no dog in the fight in terms of what is the right outcome. We just want to make sure that debates are ground in facts. I'm going to ask you a couple of times during this to, to talk about some of your private conversations with Steve. He has been quoted to say that the storm of disinformation is a bigger issue for Americans than holding different sets of beliefs. Tell us what he means by that. I think what Steve is trying to say is that when you have a story in your head based on the sources that you read, and I have a story that I've made up in my head based on the sources I read, and they're completely conflicting, we can't even begin a conversation about where do we go from here. We're just on completely different pages, and we're probably not going to be willing to sit down at the same table. We went to Capitol Hill. We met with over 200 members of Congress. Probably the most powerful conversation was when we sat down at the table with 14 senators, pretty split between Democrats and Republicans. And Steve started going through our annual report. What does the data tell us about where we stand as a country? And we had Republicans and Democrats sitting down at that table, looking at the numbers and saying, hey, look at what the data tells us. We have an issue here. One thing they were looking at at the time was obesity. This was pre-pandemic. They were saying, look at these numbers. Look what's happening with obesity. Let's start talking about how we address that. And those senators said, you all don't know what a unique conversation you just fostered here. This is the first time in my Senate career when I've sat down with people across the table and we've been able to agree on the data and start a conversation about where we go. And while I don't know that we'll agree on the right policy solutions, we started talking. We sat down in a bipartisan way and started that discussion. And I think the fact that those conversations aren't happening is what is alarming to Steve. And we think data is a place to bring people together. Do you think you will continue having meetings like that with our governors so that they know what's actually happening rather than just what they watch on their chosen media? Absolutely. We welcome those conversations. Not only do we want to keep having them on Capitol Hill and with governors, Steve has spoken at the National Governors Association. We work with local government and we're actually going out to public policy schools because our future leaders will be critical. Getting them to know this data is available Thinking about how they could use the facts to guide public policy is important to us. So we're going to go out to four public policy schools in the next month and talk to their students, our future leaders, to give them an understanding grounded in the data about where we stand as a country and, and start thinking about how we can change those numbers in a positive way. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago, you actually produce a kind of an annual report in 10K for the country, right? We do. So if you and Steve Ballmer were stockholders, would you buy, sell, or hold? That is a great question. So we'd be making a personal decision. So I'll take away the USA facts. We don't do analysis in terms of what is the right direction for our country. We just provide the data and we're really committed to that because we don't want to be viewed as a partisan source. We want to be the trusted source for just the facts. So that's our commitment at USA Facts. Personally, me as a shareholder, I'm in a hold right now. I think I, I just knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mixed bag. I'm, I'm proud to be an American for sure, but it's a mixed bag in terms of how we're doing as a country. We've suffered through a pretty traumatic pandemic as the world has. And I think there's been places where we've had opportunities to shine and, and there's been challenges. So how we recover from this, we haven't served all Americans equally. So not everyone's had some of the same success. So I think probably a whole pattern. You just brought up the pandemic. And by the way, I agree with you with the whole, I don't think any of us are ready to sell yet, but it's not buy time. Let's, let's dive into some of the things you found out about COVID. We'll be back in 30 seconds. Welcome to Life Done Better, 
Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. We're back with Poppy McDonald of USAFacts.org, and we thought we'd just dig into COVID, not because we're going to give you Fauci's advice of the day or anything like that, but you tracked so many different aspects, Poppy. Let's talk about some of them. For example, you tracked the number of daily COVID cases. We hear that over and over and over again, but we hear different versions of it. I know that Johns Hopkins tracks the number of daily COVID cases. What is different about your methodology for tracking such things than Johns Hopkins? I am really proud of what our team was able to do in the wake of the pandemic. Originally, we thought we will be the aggregators of data the government has already collected and put it on our site and make it easy to use. When COVID hit, we started seeing concerning tweets and concerning reports that Government didn't have accurate, timely, daily data about what was happening with the spread of COVID. And so our small but mighty team rallied to go night by night and gather that data real time and report it on our site. And that looked like initially going to a few counties where the outbreak was happening, but eventually looked like tracking it in 3,300 counties. We became the official providers of that data to the Centers for Disease Control and to the White House. And in terms of how that differs from others, I'm not sure of the methodologies of other organizations like Johns Hopkins. We are supportive of government data being accessible and being timely. So applaud any efforts to get that information out to the hands of Americans. We just responded to reports that it wasn't available and that it was needed and certainly filled that gap for the CDC and we're honored to be able to do that. So Poppy, what you did with the COVID data is you still took it from government sources. You just compiled or did you get it from other sources as well? That's a great question, Jane. To dig down on that a little bit, it's interesting to see the different sources that they used. And one of the things that I'm impressed with is they report each source. Like sometimes it's state and local agencies, another time it's state and local health records, and sometimes it's the U.S. Census, and sometimes it's the Center for Disease Control. Poppy, with what Jane just brought up, how do you decide what you're going to do from a source standpoint? So we try and go to the most available source first. So in many cases, we're going to the IRS, like everybody knows what that stands for, unfortunately. Uh, We interact with that agency every year. Or to the Centers for Disease Control, someone who's aggregated all of the state and local data. In the case of COVID, the fact that there wasn't a pipeline of local to state to federal became very clear when we're trying to track real time the spread of a pandemic. So for our team, it was going to the government source, but it was going county by county. For some counties, that did look like they were publicly reporting it on a website. Other counties, we were going to a Facebook page. So it just depended on what was set up by that local county. And we just worked and toiled and figured out what the reliable source was at the local government level and then brought it together and reported it daily and tracked it over time. You did this for the entire United States, every county. That's quite an accomplishment. We were really proud of the fact that we were able to step in and do that. And we had a member of our team who was on call to the White House COVID Task Force 
every night between the hours of midnight and 5 a.m. And uh, we're really pleased to be able to be that source during a tumultuous time for our country, but for individual Americans who just wanted to know, am I safe? Are my children safe? Should I have my business open? Can my kids go to school? And we felt like that local county data was so critical to their health and safety. How many people did you have working on this team? We have a pretty small team. So Everyone pitched in. Our team is 20 people strong and growing. When you hire those 20 people, Poppy, do you want to know their party affiliation? We do not ask for party affiliation, but we do have a policy, which is when you're part of USA Facts, you're about ensuring the facts are heard. And that means we don't contribute to political candidates or parties. We don't volunteer for political parties. We don't post anything partisan on our social media channels. We are agreeing at that point that having the facts heard is more important than any personal political partisan agenda. Okay, let me push back just a little bit for a second, because sometimes an argument can be made in one direction or another based on the question that's asked. The fact may be correct, but the chosen fact and its representation may actually skew the reader in one direction or another. How do you avoid that situation? Do you have like a review team that says you're asking a question that perhaps is taking us in a direction we don't want to go? Sure. So we do have a review team. In some cases, that's our internal team looking at it to say, are we just reporting the facts? In some cases, we're relying on external teams. So when we did our State of the Union in Numbers, which is an interactive data visualization that allows people to look at holistically every aspect of America, how is our country doing by the numbers? And when we first launched that product last year, we worked with a Republican senator and a Democratic senator and had their teams review it to say, does this feel nonpartisan to you? We work with different reviewers on both sides of the aisle to come in and look and say, does this feel nonpartisan to you? But ultimately, we avoid partisanship by sticking to five basic tenets. The first is we only share the facts. So it has to be factual. And that means government reported data. So we don't do predictions. We don't do analysis. We don't do any forecasting. It's just here's the data as it's reported. Isn't the government partisan by its nature? When you think about who's being elected to government in those particular political offices, they may have a party, but 95% of people who work inside the government are career analysts, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. statisticians. They don't have a party. They're here doing their jobs across multiple administrations. And really, their goal is to serve the mission of the agency that they work for. So whether that's providing housing or ensuring access to healthcare, right? It just, that is their job and it really crosses and transcends party lines. Okay, so that's the first of your five. First of my five, factual. Second is unbiased. So we don't have a particular outcome that we're advocating for. We're nonpartisan. We're just providing the facts. We're comprehensive, so we try to roll up local, state, and federal data whenever possible. Contextual, so we try to put it in context of it's not just this data point from this year, but showing history um, over time. And comprehensible. We hope that when you come to our site, you can understand it by the way we visualize the data, by the way we explain it. Yeah, I was very impressed with looking at some of the charts you had developed for COVID that while scary in nature, when you review them, I thought they transferred the information really solidly. Some of them were interesting to see that you chose 
like one of your stats was that younger adults are less sure about getting a vaccine than older adults, and lower income adults are less sure about getting a vaccine than higher income adults. That's from the U.S. Census. When did they ask those questions and how did they ask those questions that you felt comfortable publishing? So the U.S. Census does a pulse survey where they have tried to provide more recent data by going to households and asking them a series of questions. So that's where that data comes from. So it is government data, but it is going and asking American households how they feel across a number of topics. So here's one I'd like you to analyze for our, our listeners. I spent a lot of time in this one because you could click around and find out all kinds of things. States with a higher share of pandemic job losses than their population share. It basically has a, a little uh, visual color chart for each state and how many job losses they had versus their population share in the U.S. How do you decide on that question? And tell us about what you learned from it. Well, we know the pandemic didn't hit all states equally. Some states had higher outbreaks. You saw Washington State in the news early on. You saw New York certainly in the news in terms of total deaths and total cases. But we wanted to look at beyond just how it hit states from a per capita basis, what was the impact from a job loss perspective? And I think what we found was surprising there is that although New York had one of the higher COVID cases, when you looked at it from a job loss perspective, Hawaii actually per COVID case had the biggest job loss. And that's because of their reliance on tourism and hospitality. And so we really just are trying to look at the data to understand, we know it didn't have an equal impact, but who was hit the hardest and how? Those are the kinds of looks we're taking as people are trying to understand what does this pandemic mean for me based on where I live and how it's impacting my local community. Being that there are like 500 stats that you could report about what happened in COVID, that's an interesting stat that you chose to report. And I've got to think it's because you felt that somebody would need it, they would analyze it, and something would happen as a result of that fact being available. So can you tell us about that thought process with that particular question? Yeah, we are taking lots of different looks at the data in terms of demographics that are being hit in terms of by age, by race, and then geographically, who's being hit. One of the things we're thinking about is the federal government is thinking about how do we go in and help states? And what sort of assistance do we provide? We know that state revenue is probably going to be down, given the economic impact, but their expenses have increased, right, given they're fighting a pandemic. So as the federal government thinks about what states need our assistance and which states may not as much. Looking at that actual impact of COVID from a job loss perspective was one way that we could provide that information in an understandable and accessible way. How about people in each age category or morbidity category who had difficult COVID cases? We looked at who was dying from COVID and how did that look in 2019 as compared to 2020. And we looked at it by age demographic to see were more people dying than before. So we not only looked at his breakdown of age demographics, but we looked overall. There was a theory floating around out there that, oh gosh, all the same people died that were going to die anyway. They just happened to have been hit by COVID. Do the facts share that view? So we compared 2019 to 2020, and what we found was, no, that was not the case. 3.4 million people died in 2020, and that was 18% more than died in 2019, with the top three diseases, the top three killers in America being heart disease, cancer, 
and then COVID-19 as the third leading cause. And that accounted for half of all deaths in the U.S. in 2020. We also look at it by demographic breakdown on our site. I'm pretty impressed, though, with the number you just pulled out of your pocket, though. That was that was cool. Thank you. Thank you. I encourage everyone <laughs> to go to usafacts.org, though, and look at that. Look at that by demographic groups. Okay, when we come back, more stats, more facts, and more poppy. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We're back with USAFacts.org and Poppy. Have you and your team found that there are some facts, trends, stats that our government does not track purposefully for political reasons? I don't know that it's purposefully or political reasons, but there is data that is either out of date or isn't collected that we'd really like to have access to. We think it would be important in terms of driving decisions. One of those would be around firearms. In what locations or abortions? It's very hard to get access to that kind of data at the state or county level. But there's information like the gig economy, which is a new development, relatively new. How many people are employed in gig jobs? What does their income look like? Undocumented immigrants. The last number that we have is from 2015, when it was estimated there were about 12 million undocumented immigrants. But as we talk about things like whether it was building a wall in the last administration or thinking about how we increase population to impact our GDP, not having access to total immigration numbers is a challenge. Wow, that's great. For our listeners, let's dive into your annual report. When did you publish this last annual report? So we published our State of the Union in Numbers, which is a comprehensive look about how our country is doing by the numbers across healthcare, economy, population, environment, defense, any topic really that you could think of, you can go and see by the numbers how our country is doing. It's at usafacts.org, State of the Union. And it is a comprehensive look about how our country is doing. It came about tied to the State of the Union because we looked at, for the last four decades, presidents who've delivered State of the Union addresses. It's constitutionally required that there be an annual update by the president. And they generally describe the state of the country as strong, strong, never been stronger. And we know it's a bit more of a complex picture. Well, that's why you're a hold instead of a buy or sell, right? It's a complex picture. <laughs> we wanted to provide those numbers and worked initially with Senator Romney and Senator Schumer and their teams last year to say, let's give a nonpartisan assessment of how our country is doing by the numbers. Papa, you, you've looked at so many numbers, but in this last report, what were the facts that surprised you the most or that you figure was the most profound finding? When we did the comprehensive State of the Union in numbers, we knew that we'd have to talk about the pandemic and then the economic impact. So not only from a healthcare perspective, but what did that mean in terms of job losses? So we looked at the 9.3 million jobs that were lost from our economy in 2020. And when we looked at who that impacted, we saw majority of the jobs lost came from people who made below median income. So that accounted for 8% of jobs lost 
in that bracket, only 3% of total jobs above median income were lost. So we know it really impacted those people hardest. You know, when you think about COVID and how much we've been talking about the spread, and I don't want to undermine it, 27 million Americans, 8% of our population have been diagnosed with COVID. But we also looked at housing insecurity, and 9.5% of adults said they faced housing insecurity in December. And you don't hear a lot about that in the news. You certainly don't hear about it as compared to COVID, and yet it's impacting a bigger percent of our population. And then from just a perspective of a a mom who's got kids going to college, we looked at how college tuition has changed under education and State of the Union and numbers. And we know that college tuition on average is now $23,902. That's an increase of over 80% since 1993, adjusting for inflation. So people are paying 80% more for that bachelor's degree. But over that same period of time, their incomes, their salaries have only gone up 5%. So what else surprised you in the report? Something that always surprises me is that only a third of children in our country are proficient in math and reading at the eighth grade level. Every two years, the federal government does an assessment to see how kids are doing in math and reading. And out of a total of 500 points available on the assessment, 280 out of 500 is where they want you to score. And we've only got a third of our kids who are able to do that. And it doesn't look the same across the country. I think it's devastating. But even in our our top performing states, which would be somewhere like Massachusetts, you've got 45% of kids in reading and 47% in math who are proficient. Do you mind if we dive into that just a little bit? Yeah. When you say of kids, do you mean of eighth graders? Of eighth graders. These are the percentages that actually qualify for proficient in math and reading. Yeah, of eighth graders, and it's similar for fourth grade as well. I would hate for you to do that same test on adults, by the way. I think the eighth grade math assessment, I don't know, Steve has threatened to give it to us and and see how we all do. And it's been a while since eighth grade. So there might be some algebra that that we've forgotten. But I hope that we all uh, would have been doing pretty well in the eighth grade. So when you find something like this stat, or maybe the the college tuition, let's go back to the COVID job losses based on income and status. Mm -hmm. Aren't you just dying to pick up the phone and call someone that you feel can affect change and say, have you seen this stat? Can we help you give you more information around this? And can you get off the golf course and actually pay attention to this, please? When I see this data, I definitely get fired up as an American citizen saying this is powerful information and I want to make sure it gets into the hands of the right people. So what that looks like for USA Facts is doing things like going to Capitol Hill and we've been there twice, but spending a day talking to lawmakers, asking how can we make this information accessible to you. It looks like calling organizations that represent big groups of constituents, whether that's the AARP who represents senior citizens in the uh, United States, or whether that's calling education associations or National Association of Manufacturing and saying, here's what's happening with jobs. So yes, we are picking up the phone. We are calling people. Our objective is to get the facts heard. Ask people who are in power and who've been uh, elected or who represent big constituencies to advocate for making those numbers better. When you and Steve are chatting and when you're in private, just hanging out. Have you two arrived at a reasoning why so many people in the United States believe complete nonsense? 
you must have an opinion why conspiracy and, and hoax theorists are so successful in getting people to believe absolute garbage. It's got to come up in your conversation. What's your thought? We are definitely dismayed not only at the amount of misinformation that is out there and then that people are passing along or forwarding and sharing probably with a big heart because emotion drives us and uh, we want to get concerning information out there without maybe taking the step of fact-checking it. We're concerned about that. I think we're also concerned about the lack of trust in major institutions in America from academia to religion uh, to government and business, certainly. And all we talk about is like, what is the antidote for this? And we really do think it is making the facts accessible. So that gets us out of bed in the morning for sure. And our small but mighty team rallying to say, how can we get more data accessible on our site? And how can we get it into the hands of Americans to try and ensure that they can have a source of truth and have an easy to access source of truth, whether they're an individual citizen or even a journalist to be able to pause and say, I know there's a quick place that I can go, a trusted resource to get the facts on that. And lastly, Poppy, what's the next cool thing that you're going to publish on the site? So usafacts.org. Next cool thing is we continue to add vaccination data. We know that that is hugely important in terms of recovery from COVID. So looking at how states are doing at vaccinating people, being able to break that down by demographics and understanding progress we're making there. And then we will be updating our state of the earth, which really looks at how are we doing from an environmental perspective? And we'll update that in April uh, to coincide with Earth Day. And then lots of other great new data to come. Wow, state of the earth, that'll be controversial. Are you going to try to draw a trend between what's been happening for 100 years and what's been happening in the last 10? So we do look at it over time and see from an environment perspective, how do we look different than we have for, for certainly since data was collected. But we know 2020, I think was the second warmest year on record. But we also saw carbon emissions go down in the first 10 months. Now, that was largely because of COVID and, and people not driving and no air travel. We're putting it all together. I was going to throw out another fact, but I'll keep it at that and encourage people to come check it out. Poppy McDonald, usafacts.org. Thank you so much for joining us on Politics. Meet me in the middle. Poppy, how do people follow you? Oh, thank you. I am on Twitter at PoppyMacD. And I'm at poppy at usafacts.org. So we always welcome hearing from listeners, your listeners, and uh, people coming to uscfacts.org. So really appreciate that opportunity. Wonderful, Poppy. Our executive producer for this episode of Meet Me in the Middle is Stuart Halpern. Show engineering is by none other than Joey Salvia. Music for this episode is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Don't waste your time hunting around for our next episode. Hit that subscribe button. We'll see you next week, folks. And that's a fact. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.